Hi, I'm Andy Brown, the editorial director of the Bloomberg New Economy. For the past few weeks, I've been sharing highlights of my video broadcasts called On the Front Lines and Bloomberg New Economy Conversations, which look at how COVID-19 is reshaping the global economy. This is the final installment before I hand back to Stephanie Flanders, who has so generously allowed me to take over her feed. I leave you with an interview I recorded with Jonathan Hillman of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington about his new book called The Emperor's New Road, China and the Project of the Century. That project, of course, is the Belt and Road Initiative, the grand strategy of Chinese President Xi Jinping, who has made it his foreign policy signature. But what is it exactly? An imperial effort, certainly, but according to Jonathan, not a very organized one, and one that could repeat the mistakes of empires long gone. Take a listen. The title of your new book is The Emperor's New Road. The emperor being Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, the road being Belt and Road, his globe-spanning infrastructure connectivity project. How important is this project to Xi and to his historical legacy? Well, this is his signature foreign policy vision. Um, And so this is so important that it's been written into the Chinese party Party constitution. Um, So tough to imagine it being more important than it is And in fact, I think that the importance of this thing has almost become a liability. Um, It makes canceling these projects all the more difficult. Um, No one ever wants to be the person to cancel an infrastructure project. But if you're a Chinese official, you certainly don't want to be the person to cancel the infrastructure project affiliated with Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision. Let's talk about roads. The Romans built roads too, straight roads, and they marched their armies along these arteries. Is the Belt and Road, in your view, more an imperialist project like the Roman roads? Is it more about China find, finding outlets for its industrial surpluses, creating new markets for its products, and goods, and services? Or, as China would have it, is it all about providing public goods, highways, fiber optic cables, and so on, like the U.S. Marshall Plan, but for the whole world? So I do call it an imperial project in the book, um, but it's different than the imperial projects that have come before it. And that's something I try to do is I I lay out, um, you know, how this compares to um, what European powers were doing in Africa and Asia what Japan was doing in Southeast Asia, what the United States has done um, in Pakistan. And I think all of those experiences provide almost a yardstick um, against which you can measure China's activities and against which you can come to some conclusions about Chinese power. And I think that this, this imperial project um, is more gradual, um, more incremental. It's more commercial in nature. And I think China faces barriers to this project that many of its predecessors did not face. Um, But it is going into some very risky markets. You mentioned the Marshall Plan. um, And I think the Marshall Plan uh, really stands out because the Marshall Plan was a finite, uh, you know, it was going to last for a certain number of years. It involved a specific number of countries. Uh, There was a, you know, a budget for the Marshall Plan. You could say what was in it and what wasn't in it. You can't do that with the Belt and Road. 
uh, it is open-ended um, and ever-expanding, um, and it involves developing countries. And I think one of the lessons here, um, you know, the United States learned this in Pakistan as well. Um, developing countries is a lot more difficult than rebuilding uh, developed economies. Scholars often note that the original Silk Road was a two-way interchange or exchange. China sent silk and porcelain one way, and then in the other direction came ideas from other civilizations, including Buddhism, which changed China. Two questions. One, what are the most important Chinese exports along the Belt and Road, and what comes back into China? So I think the most important exports are China's state-owned enterprises. I mean, they are really the number one beneficiary of this uh, undertaking. China has seven of the world's 10 largest construction companies. You know, as you know, they've built so much at home that they've run out of things to build. And so now they, they're, they're eager for work abroad. Um, they are, in many cases, the most influential actors on the ground. They bring with them um, their own workers in many cases. They bring with them their own equipment. Um, so that, that is a major export. Um, you know, and, and from that also comes, um, you know, in some cases, Chinese standards, Chinese practices for, for, um, for building projects. Um, so I don't want to discount the standard setting importance of this as well. Um, and then what comes back? Um, I think a lot less than is often advertised. Countries, I think, sign MOUs for the Belt and Road, and politicians will say that this is going to increase our exports to China. Um, I think you know, the evidence for that is pretty limited. Um, this is definitely something that's financed by China, intended to benefit China, um, and benefiting most of all at state-owned enterprises. Xinjiang, the major Western gateway for the Belt and Road. China explains its crackdown on the Uyghurs there. The UN says more than a million Uyghurs are incarcerated in re-education camps. Um, in terms of combating terrorism, the security of Belt and Road is clearly top of mind. What did you learn about Xinjiang in writing this book and how Xi looks at the whole question of security there? So I think in the early days of Belt and Road, one of the arguments that was made um, for it domestically within China was that it was going to benefit less developed regions, uh, Western China being you know, a, an important part of that. It was going to help balance growth right between the more developed coastal regions and the, and the regions inland. Um, that hasn't happened. And I think if you, if you go, um, as I had the opportunity to do um, a few years ago, uh, into Shenzhen, and um, I think it was very striking um, that this is an area that's supposed to be critical for connecting China to other countries through the Belt and Road, um, and it is plagued with um, security checkpoints, um, with police stations, um, economic activity um, was quite slow, but you know the security sector was thriving. And so I think, to me, this is a real, um, a real contradiction in the Belt and Road, a real tension um, between China's um, its focus on connectivity and how it describes the Belt and Road and its um, unwillingness to give up control. Um, and so I think you see that really starkly in, in Shenzhen. I mean, you know, even beyond the you know, enormous uh, human cost there, there's also this economic cost of, um, you know, this is not a place to, 
to, to do business, to, you know, have goods and people moving freely. Um, that comes, that comes with a high toll. And I think the bigger point here too, with the Belt and Road Initiative, this tension between connectivity and control, it's that if those physical barriers, but it's also in some ways, you know, China's approach to connectivity, um, you know, it's great firewall um, that it's sharing with other countries, you know, sharing technology to limit the spread of ideas and information, um, you know, putting capital controls in place to limit the flow of finance. So this is really, um, to me, a, a core, a core tension in this global vision of connectivity. Roads require plans. They are rather precise engineering projects. But you look at Belt and Road rather differently. To you, it's anything but a carefully laid out grid. Explain that. So sometimes you'll see you'll see maps of the Belt and Road, um, you know, and there are many maps and there, there, there are not, I don't think that there really is an official Belt and Road map. There's just different depictions of this. Um, but at some point, Chinese officials started saying that there were six corridors in the Belt and Road. Um, and so there, there's broad sweeping lines across the Eurasian supercontinent. And it gives this, this um, feeling um, of form and structure that when you actually go and look does not exist. Um, so you know, no evidence that China is channeling economic activity into these corridors with the exception of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which by the way is not very focused on connectivity at all. And, and so in a, in a way it's the exception that proves the rule. Um, but a lot of the activity is really more opportunistic, more disorganized, sometimes chaotic. Um, but you don't get that impression from listening to a Xi Jinping speech at a Belt and Road Forum that really requires going and looking at individual projects and stepping back and asking whether they reflect a lot of the rhetoric that's being used. The U.S., of course, portrays Belt and Road as a debt trap. China forcing expensive infrastructure onto emerging economies like Sri Lanka and then swooping in to take over ownership when debts go unpaid. What does that narrative get right about the Belt and Road and what does it obscure? So the debt trap narrative, I think, in a way gives Chinese officials too much credit. You know, this idea that they have strategically raised a country's debt levels to a point that they can then take hold of a strategic asset. Um, that's very, that's, you know, very sophisticated economic statecraft. It involves having lots of different actors on the same page. Um, to me, it's much, much more likely the Hamantota case in Sri Lanka that so much has been made of, you know, the poster child for debt trap diplomacy. It's much more likely to me that um, China was trying to limit its losses um, in taking over that port, but not that it set out to have this be its ultimate goal. Because I think, frankly, the project has been a stain on the Belt and Road, um, on China's reputation. Um, and, you know, not a lot of economic activity happening at Hamantota Port. Um, and so the, the real story of Hamantota Port, which I get into in the book, I think is a little bit less spy thriller, a little bit more Shakespearean drama, um, and domestic politics are, are the key. Um, it's really, a, you know, about um, a politician's unchecked ambition and ego, um, and uh, the, the, the facts, unfortunate fact that Sri Lanka now has to pay the price for that. 
Well, what about Chinese financial liabilities? China itself is sitting on a mountain of debt. And here it is lending to shaky economies in what you just described as some of the riskiest places on earth, including Pakistan. Does there come a point where China runs out of money to fund this grand road building ambition? Yes, the risk runs both ways. And I think that's important to remember. I think there's this idea sometimes that even when China fails, it wins. And I don't think that that's the case. So there is financial risk, there's reputational risk. Um, and in fact, bef even before the pandemic, we saw a really a pretty pronounced pullback in Belt and Road activity. So, you know, peak Belt and Road activity was probably 2016, 2017, a big pullback um, in 2019. And now the pandemic has really frozen things. You know, Chinese officials are saying, um, you know, close to 40% of projects are impacted by this, but they will still tell you, don't worry, no major projects have been canceled. I, again, I think going back to this idea that this is uh, Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision. So the risk is there. And I think um, because of uh, how important this is politically, you know, I, I think that the risk has been um, underappreciated and, um, and, and maybe overlooked to some extent. You say 40% of the projects have, have, have been put on hold. Is this, is this a permanent setback to Belt and Road or just a temporary phenomenon that gets restarted when COVID is under control? So I think this is this year and you know, into next year is I think the great renegotiation along the Belt and Road. I think um, Chinese officials are spending more time um, renegotiating deals than negotiating new deals. The project pipeline was already slowing down before the pandemic. And so I think this you know, will accelerate a process that was already in place. Um, recipient countries are, you know, have, are going to be quite limited in what they can, can do, what they can take on. So that's going to impose a constraint around this. Um, and also, if you just imagine what the world of infrastructure projects looked like in 2013 when this was announced, you had some, some targets that were ready um, to go. But the longer you do this, the more difficult it becomes to find those, you know, the low-hanging fruit. So the low-hanging fruit has been picked, um, and it turns out that some of it was rotten. How much, how much has China spent on it so far? So all of these estimates, yeah, any Belt and Road estimate, including the one that I'm about to give, should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, it depends on what you count for countries participating and what activities and so on. The best data that I have seen suggests that this is still a little bit south of $500 billion in terms of total activity across countries participating in the Belt and Road since, since it was announced in 2013. So not the one trillion that's often assigned to it, certainly not the four trillion that's sometimes assigned to it, and definitely not the eight trillion um, that you occasionally hear. Final question. Your, your book is part economics, part geopolitics, but also part travelogue. You actually rode railways in Africa, hopped cargo ships across the Caspian. When we all start traveling again after COVID, what parts of Belt and Road would you recommend visiting, particularly for those of your readers with a taste for adventure? So I think it's becoming easier now to find um, the boat that I took from Kazakhstan to Azerbaijan. Um, you know, when I was looking for it, I was told it was going to come to one port. Um, then I'm on, on online tracking ships trying to get a sense for whether it's actually going to show up, showed up at a, at a port, a new port that was an hour away. Um, and so I had to scramble to get on it. It was a 32 hour 
um, ride, but really unlike anything, you know, I have done before, you know, to be on the, on the roof of a, um, uh, ship going across the Caspian, um, is something special. And so it's a, it's a, um, adventure that most people don't take. It was me and, um, a gang of Russian bikers actually who wanted to get their motorcycles from Kazakhstan to Azerbaijan. Um, so some interesting company. Jonathan Hillman, the Emperor's New Road. Thanks for your time. It's been great talking with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll tune in later this year for a digital edition of the annual Bloomberg New Economy Forum, where business and government leaders from around the world will talk about the challenge of building a more sustainable and equitable post-COVID economy.